You guys do this every day, don't you? You guys go have kangaroos in your gardens, right? Is that how it works? Yeah. You know, I was telling him this morning, if you come to Switzerland, you could feed cows and pet cats. That would be really exciting, wouldn't it? So you're welcome to come over there. But anyway, it really is very, very exciting to be here. Thank you so much again for the invitation. Um, as you know, the theme of this InStep conference this year is witnessing to our world, witnessing to our world. And so as we discussed how to put this together, uh, we thought it would be good last night to start sort of with my testimony of an example of how um, one can come to Christ as I was brought to Christ by this missionary in India. For those who were here last night and knew the story, I backpacked to India in 1976 for six months and uh, out of the blue met a missionary on the street, a young, a young Dutch guy who with one verse in five minutes told me the gospel, led me to Jesus Christ. And on November 2nd, 1976, my life was forever completely transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And uh, so that was like an example of how God can use a messenger, prepare a recipient and put those circumstances together to bring someone to Christ. This morning, I thought it would be good to more look more at the role of an evangelist and what kind of person the Lord wants to use when we think of evangelism. So actually, what I have, uh, I, the title I gave this message today is Our Sacred Duty to the Lost. Our Sacred Duty to the Lost. And what I would like to do is to look at the life, the most amazing life of Stephen, in Acts 6 and 7. But before we go there, before we go there, I would like to start kind of with a very intense thing. I would like for you, before we go to Acts 6 and 7, to go with me to the last verse in the book of Isaiah. The last verse in the book of Isaiah. As we read this verse, you will notice that it is one of the most troubling verses in all the Bible. I would like to start at verse 22, because in verse 22, we have a description, actually in verse 23 of heaven, and then verse 24 of hell. Let me start at verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Now, I don't want to start with depression, but we are going to start with depression today, okay? Because verse 24, and I've looked at a lot of commentaries, I've checked this over and over and over. Verse 24 describes hell, and these verses tell us that those in heaven will see those who are suffering eternal damnation in the unquenchable flames of hell. Now, if you think that is troubling, go with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. 
says something absolutely incredible in verse 28. Luke 13 and verse 28. Jesus is talking, and he says this, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So he's describing hell. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out. Jesus is saying, in the most amazing way, that those in hell will be able to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but they themselves having been thrown out. So what we find out in these amazing verses that I've just gone over very, very quickly, is that the wicked who are severing eternal damnation in hell will see the righteous in heaven, and the righteous will see the wicked in hell from heaven. Now you go, John, are you serious? I mean, is this really going to happen? Yes. That's what it says. You see, this will be a display of God's perfect justice. However difficult it may be to grasp from a human perspective, when that day comes and we will see the wicked receiving their just retribution from a just a holy God, we will bow down and worship God all the more and thank Him for His grace in our lives through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. We will worship God. We will worship God over and over and over for all eternity over His justice. But we're not there yet. Until then, this troubling truth should deeply affect us by putting on our hearts the burning passion of warning the lost of their certain fate if they do not repent and come to Christ. You know, Ezekiel 2.7 summarizes this perfectly, this duty we have perfectly. It says this, But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not. That is our duty. Whether people listen or not, we are to warn them and let them know, you know, this is what is waiting for you if you do not repent. Our sacred duty is to present to the lost the word of God with regard to their state and the state of their soul and their eternal destiny. We must proclaim Christ and Christ crucified to all that they might believe and be forgiven and thus receive eternal life. And we must warn them of those terrible consequences. So, this morning, I would like to help us in this very scary and complicated endeavor. I recognize that evangelism is not easy. It's scary. You know what? I, as I said this last night, I'm a professional evangelist, in a way. I'm a professional missionary. I still get scared all the time when I have to announce the gospel to someone, when I have to talk the gospel to someone. It's scary. It's never easy. I need inspiration, just like you do. 
I need reminders of what my duty is and how to do it. I read biographies to give me courage. I love to see the examples of how others did it. Well, today, I would like in the time we have this morning to look at the life of one of the greatest evangelists of all times. His name is Stephen, and his story is found in Acts 6 and 7. So we can go there, Acts 6 and 7. Now, as you turn there, let me tell you why Stephen. Why have I chosen the life of Stephen? Well, because not only was he a great witness, but because Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian church. And do you know why he was the first martyr of the Christian church? Because he took this mandate seriously. He dared confront sinners with the truth. And you know what? It cost him his life. It cost him his life. So, my question is this. Do we take our sacred duty to the lost seriously? That's the question. That's the question. Stephen's name means crown. Stephanos. It's a Greek name, which means that he was either Greek or Greek descent or simply a Greek-speaking Jew. But it's interesting Crown means, his name means crown, which is totally appropriate as he was crowned as the church's first martyr. So, what are the qualities in this man that made him such a great evangelist, such a great witness? And these are the ones I would like to look, and I hope they will be very directly applicable to each and every one of us. There are seven qualities, seven qualities that make him a great Witness. So, number one, here it is. Number one. He was based in the church. He was based in the church. So you remember the context. Jesus has risen from the dead. He ascended to heaven. In Acts 1.8, just before ascending into heaven, very interesting, it says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus explains that one of the primary reasons he was going to send the Holy Spirit was to empower them to become effective witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth. So right at the outset, it's still interesting, we find out one of the reasons why we've been given the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit so as to be witnesses. It gives us the power to be witnesses. And this is important, because... Stephen, who was empowered by the Holy Spirit, became a witness. And the word witness here is the word martyrus, from which we get the word martyr. So he was a witness martyred for his faith. Now you remember what happens in Acts chapter 2. God sends the Holy Spirit. Day of Pentecost, the church is birthed. In verse 41, so then, chapter 2 verse 41. Love this verse. 
So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is like an instant megachurch. Chapter 4, verse 4, But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. We're talking, this church is like booming with people. In just two chapters, we have many thousands of people in this church. And in chapter 6, verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. I mentioned this last night already. So this church grows and first crisis. You know, when, you know, it's funny. I'm a small church pastor and I sometimes dream, oh, it'd be so cool to have a really big church. Then you read this, you go, wait a minute. You know, small churches, small problems, big churches, big problems. They have a big problem here, okay? Big church, big problem. And somehow, these widows, these Greek widows that were in Jerusalem had been neglected in the distribution of food. They weren't getting the food they needed. And so they're going to solve this problem. It's a big problem. It's the first problem we see in the church. There's almost a whole chapter dedicated to this problem. Right? And so, in verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. So the disciples understood their priorities and said, You know what? We need to serve tables, but not us. Let's find a crew of people to do this. A group of people. Therefore, brethren... Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task, and we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So I already went over these last night, talking about Philip. Seven men of good reputation, they were recognized as top-notch people, people spoke well of them, they were full of the Holy Spirit, they were Spirit-led they were Holy Spirit-led. They were leading, leading holy lives. They were full of wisdom. They were really walking the walk. You know, it always has amazed me to see the qualifications they wanted for people to serve food to widows. I mean, their job was simply to feed some widows. Now, my, there's probably money involved, so it was an important job. But it didn't seem like super difficult to do that. It doesn't seem like super spiritual, but it was. Because these are the qualifications they wanted for these men. Now it's interesting. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. Now I want you to notice the first person on the list. Stephen. This is our guy. Stephen. I'm thinking to myself, okay, this church is what? Five, eight, ten thousand people big. Why was he picked as number one? That means this guy must have already had a huge reputation in the church to be the number one guy picked for this job. Now, here's the clincher. Where did they find him? Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you. 
from among you men of good reputation for the spirit of wisdom whom he put in charge of this task. We will devote ourselves to prayer. The statement found approval and they picked Full of faith, uh, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, the proselyte from Antioch. So it's interesting, they picked these men, Stephen is number one, and where do they find him? Among you. To me, that is a key, key, key statement. You see, friends, the reason I like this is because we find out a lot about Stephen here we find out that Stephen was totally committed to the local church. Totally committed to the local church. He was a local church guy. Yes, we'll see in just a minute, he had a huge ministry outside the church. But he was a local church guy. And he never complains about the task he's being asked to do to serve widows here. He accepts it with joy. Many people... Want to go win the world for Christ, but they aren't committed to the local church. They are solos. There's a ton of solo missionaries out there. Ultra-independent. They can't work with anybody. They're on their own. You know, in Acts 13, it's interesting. Now, there was an Antioch in the church that was there. Verse 1. Prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Isn't it interesting that Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, was sent from a local church, Antioch, and it says, while he was ministering to the Lord and fasting. See, Paul was totally committed to the local church as well. Yes, he had an incredible ministry outside the church. But it all started within the church. Why? Why is it so important to be committed to the local church? Well, because it's in the local church that the word of God is preached. That produces growth. It is in the church that character is evaluated. That produces godly aspirations. It is in the church that elders are to be respected. That produces humility. It is in the church that sin is disciplined. That produces fear and holiness. It is in the church that gifts are put to use. That produces training. It is in the church that new believers are discipled. And that produces new blood to carry out the work until the Lord returns. It is in the church that the Lord is active because Jesus said, I will build my church. And therefore, it is there that we are active in the Lord's work. You see, to be a good evangelist, you've got to start in the local church. Now, years ago, I was in Seattle. My wife is from Seattle. And we were rocking town. It was uh, during a summer, beautiful day. And there was a street preacher. I love street preachers because I was saved by a, by, not by a street preacher, I was saved by Jesus Christ, okay? But that Jesus Christ was being proclaimed by the street preacher. And I, I saw, so I, we went up and we started listening to this guy. It was really exciting, great sermon. It was health, health, 
hellfire and brimstone, you know, is, is the, the gospel was clear. He was preaching hell. He was preaching heaven. He was preaching retent- repentance. Jesus, God, uh, died, rose again. The whole thing was perfect. So after the sermon, I went up to the guy and I said, wow, that was a great sermon. He said, thanks. I said, I can I ask you a question? I mean, are you, where are the people with you? Are you alone? He goes, yeah, I'm alone. I said, you're alone down here? I mean, aren't there other people with you, like praying for you from your church? He goes, no, no, no. I said, what's your church? He goes, oh, I don't have a church. I said, what do you mean you don't have a church? He goes, ah, I've had nothing but problems in churches. I do it all by myself now. And I said to him, I don't know if I should have, but I said to him, I said to him, sir, what you are doing is really bad. What you are doing is really bad. You are all by yourself. If you win someone to Christ, what are you going to tell them? Don't go to church. You have nothing but problems in churches. No. You've got to take them to a local church because this is where new believers grow. If you don't have a local church, what you're doing is very bad. I said, you need to stop preaching. You need to go back to your last local church, get things right with them, and then have people go out and pray with you. So I don't know if that was the right thing to do or not, but that's what I did, okay? But I think it's so important for us to be in the local church. This is what Stephen's truth about him. So, number one. Number one, you need to be based in the church. Number two. Number two, you need to be bridged to the world. You need to be bridged to the world. Acts 6, verse 7. This is very exciting. The word of God kept spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. You know what I love about this verse? Where was Stephen in verse 8? Last three words. See it? Among the people. Among the people. These verses are amazing. We find out in verse 7 that the words keep spreading. More and more people are coming to Christ, including a great many of the priests. There's like a revival going on in the religious establishment of Jerusalem. Miracles are being performed. Stephen, like Peter and John, had received the gift of miracles, was using them as a means to authenticate the gospel message. And this is exciting stuff. And here, these words in verse 8, Stephen was among the people. See, what I like about Stephen is that he was totally balanced. He was in the church, totally committed to the local church, willing to serve in menial tasks, helping widows, feeding them, whatever. He was a godly guy in the church, helping, serving. But he's also among the people. He's also in the world. I love that. I really love that. He knows that if you want to win someone to Christ, guess what? This is revolutionary. You've got to be with them. You've got to be with the non-believers to lead them to Christ. You can't do it any other way. Look at with me with Matthew 9. Matthew 9. Verse 35. I think Jesus was a pretty good evangelist, don't you? Look at this. This is great. Matthew 9, 35, Jesus was going through 
all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So, did you see where Jesus was? In the cities and in the villages. Well, of course. If you want to win people to the gospel, you've got to be with them. So, that's what he did. That's what he did. In verse 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Now, in verse 36, it's very interesting. It says, and seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them. That word, compassion, is a very interesting word. In Greek, it is the word splagna. Splagna. Well, what does splagna mean? Splagna is a word for bowels or intestines or gut. Have you ever been in a situation where you feel so bad for someone that your whole intestines sort of nut up? And you're just like, ugh, you feel so gross and there's this massive stomach ache. That's the word splagna. Splagna. And this is what Jesus says. It says, he felt splagna for them, for the people he was seeing in the villages and in the cities. Why? Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. You see, folks, when you are with people that don't know the Lord, you begin to hear their stories. You begin to see their ministry, their, their misery and their problems and the effect of sin in their lives. You begin to see broken lives, helpless people, frustrated people. You see busted up families, frustrated parents and children, depressed people, divorced people, separated people, lonely people, sick people, hopeless people, drugged up people, perverted people. But more than anything, you see people who are spiritually lost. Spiritually lost. You see people who are sheep without a shepherd, and your heart begins to break for them. And your desire in life is want to help them, and you know that they need the Lord. That is the way to help them. You know, years ago, um, Megan and I, I believe you were in Los Angeles. We were driving somewhere. We were newlyweds, and um, we stopped at a red light somewhere in L.A., and we saw this dog with a bloody paw. He must have been hit by a, a car or something. And he was hopping, and as people were walking down the sidewalk, this dog was following the person to get compassion. And so people got scared, of course, so they kind of walked fast, and the next person would come, so the dog would then follow the next person. <laughs> And the next person would come, and, and we saw this dog going back and forth, just looking for someone to help it. So we were looking. We started feeling bad for this dog. And uh, it, it was kind of, you know, feel bad. I mean, the, this, this poor dog needed help. So you know what we decided to do? To help it. <laughs> I was thinking, are we really doing this? We did. We, we, we pull over, and we opened the door, and we went out, and this dog realized that we were coming to help it. And it just got so excited. It came right up to us, began to lick us. 
And it was like the friendliest dog, just so happy. And we thought, wow, we have just stopped to help this stray dog. This is like a very strange moment. But you know what? It was too late. Now we had Splogna. Splogna for the dog. We were involved in this dog's life. There was no turning back. So you know what we did? We got a blanket from our trunk, put it on the back seat. I literally picked up this dog with a bloody paw and put it on the back seat of my car. I was going to myself, John, you are crazy. But we were involved with the dog. We had to do this. So now we're going to the veterinarian with this bloody dog. And we go to the veterinarian that we find somehow. It was before GPSs. And we give the dog to the, to the, to the vet. And Meg is crying. Why? Why? Because we got involved in the life of the dog. And I thought to myself, John, you did that for a dog. Would you do it for a person? Interesting question. I'm not going to answer that one. Because I wonder if I would do it for a person. Frankly. I have a friend who did. He was a missionary in Uganda. He got to an intersection in town just after, like seconds after an accident happened. A man on a motorbike had been hit by a car. His leg was chopped off. I mean, he had like just skin holding it on. And in those countries, there's no, you know, emergency stuff. So it's like, you do something where he dies. So this missionary said, I'm going to do something. He picked up this guy, put him in his car, rushed him to the hospital, paid for the whole thing. His, I, I was there, so I saw, I saw the guy. I mean, I was, I was there like three days later, so I saw the guy with his chopped off leg. And the guy said, it was a good Samaritan story to the hospital, fix him. I know he's going to be disowned by his family, so I will take him at my house. And I got there for a conference just a few days later, and there was this African guy whose leg has been, been chopped off. And two years later, I believe, he came to Christ, and now he's involved in the ministry of that particular missionary. He did it. Would I do it? That's the question. The whole point here is, is once you're in the world with people, guess what happens? You start being involved and feeling splagna. Splagna. And that is what Stephen did. He was with the people. That leads to point three. Yes, the qualities of that evangelist, he was based in the church, bridge to the world, number three, he was bathed in the word. Bathed in the word. Do you know what happens when you start spending time with people and with non-Christians? When you start spending time among the peoples with them, well, opportunities to share the gospel will just start popping up in the most amazing ways that you just don't expect. In chapter 6, we're back at Acts 6. Look what happens. Very interesting. Verse 6, 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilician Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. 
And they were unable to cope with wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against his holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that the, of this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So here he is. He's proclaiming the word. He's in the street. He's with the people. Right? Opposition immediately comes his way. Very strong. First of all, they start disputing with him. Arguments in verse 9. Then they begin to bring false accusations to him in verse 11. They stir up a crowd against him in verse 12. Now they come upon him physically and drag him away and bring him before the council. And they put forward more false witnesses in verse 15. So here we are. Stephen, who's in the world, he's doing miracles, healing people, and whammo, they come. And they get him. And they start falsely accusing him. That's what will happen. That's what will happen when we're in the world and we start talking to people. They will not like it once we start dropping the gospel in their laps. They will react. So here he is, accused, pushed around, shaken up, tensions to the max, before the council. And then we get to chapter 7, verse 1. What a verse. The high priest said, Are these things so? Whoa! This is like the ideal missionary invitation. You know, when that question comes, you'd better be ready to answer it. Because as you're involved in people's lives, they will look at you, they will listen to you, and they go, Hey, wait a minute. Are you really... Sure about this? You're a Christian? Are you ready at that point to take over and answer? That's what he does. So, starting in chapter 7, verse 2, all the way through verse 53, Stephen answers the question. The question is this, are these things so? Four words. He answers by a spontaneous 51-verse sermon. I love this about the guy. A masterful sermon. Actually, it's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. He has no Bibles in his hand. No notes. No iPhone, like I said yesterday, with a bunch of Bibles on it. He speaks from memory with his mouth. And he gives an eight-point sermon. Starting in verse 2, all the way to verse 47, he traces the history of Israel. Verse 2, Abraham. Verse 8, Isaac. Verse 8, Jacob. Verse 9, Joseph. Verse 20, Moses. Verse 45, Joshua. Verse 45, David. Verse 47, Solomon. Now, we're not going to look at this sermon in detail, obviously. You know what he does? This is basically what he's saying. His premise is this. God spoke through all these great prophets of the past, and you Jews who are about to lynch me know it as well as I do. And they were all probably saying, yes, that is true. Yes, that is true. They love these prophets. They loved hearing these stories. So they were with them all the way. And he was basically saying, in verse 51 and 53, we'll see this in one second, and these prophets announced the coming Messiah. 
So they're basically saying amen to all of this. Now, what I want to point here is simply my third point. Uh, my, my, uh, my, my third point. He knew the basic Bible facts. He knew his Bible well enough to be able to review very quickly and from memory all the prophets from the past quickly. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the faith that is in you with gentleness and reverence for the hope that is with you. We are always supposed to be ready. Ready. I tried this some years ago. I was on an airplane going somewhere and there was this Jewish gal sitting next to me. It was the weirdest thing. All the lights in the airplane cut out. We only had a couple of little reading lights, but it was like a weird moment where there was just no light. I had a flashlight with me. And... um but we couldn't see it and couldn't read it. And so I, I began to talk to this girl with very, very little light. I couldn't really read my Bible. It was, it was just kind of strange. And so I decided I'm going to pull a Stephen off. I'm going to try and preach the gospel to this Jewish lady from memory only using the Old Testament. It was a blast. It was amazing. Because when you are forced to do that, it's amazing all these verses start popping into your mind. Like Isaiah 53 is popping in my mind. Uh, Psalm 22 is popping into my mind. It was like really fun to be able to do that. This is what he does here. From memory. From memory. The question there is, do we know the basic Bible facts to be able to do that? This leads to point four. Point four. First of all, he was based in the church, bridged to the world, bathed in the word number four, bold with the point. Oh boy, hold on to your seat. This is incredible. So he gives this long sermon, right? He reviews Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, Solomon, and they're all with him going, yeah, amen, yeah, amen, 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 until verse 51. Chapter 7, verse 51. This is how... Stephen ends his sermon. Are you ready? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayer and murderers you have now become you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Ladies and gentlemen, he was bold to the point. He was bold to the point. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about this conclusion? Honestly, pretty bold, don't you think? Would you have said this? Have you ever said this to anybody? Or anything like this? It takes a lot of splogna, a lot of gut to do this, okay? Let me contemporize it. Let's take Joe. Suppose you have a neighbor called Joe or someone you know, and you've just shared the gospel with Joe. You review the Old Testament, you know, Isaiah 53, and he's like really interested. Would you end like this? Joe, you are stiff-necked. Joe, you are uncircumcised of heart. Okay, now that might be a little complicated for you to say that. I don't think he'd catch that saying, okay? But you might try this. Joe, you are a rotten, dirty sinner in the hands of an angry God. 
Joe, and I'm just paraphrasing what I read. Joe, I have noticed that you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. In fact, Joe, you are no different than your father and grandfather who were reprobate Christ rejectors. And Joe, your ancestors are murderers since they basically killed the prophets who had announced the coming of Christ. Joe, you are a betrayer. You are a murderer. You are nothing but a lawbreaker. That's right, Joe. You continuously break the law that was ordained by angels. How do you think Joe will react? (laughs) Now, I'm not saying you should go home and try it, but why not? (laughs) You might lose all your friends, okay? But, but you know what, is, what we see here? He was bold and to the point. Okay, I'm going to confess something. Confess. I've been a missionary for 30 years. Do you know how many times I have fudged the gospel? Do you know how many times I've explained the gospel and people were all happy and I thought to myself, boy, do I go for the jugular now or not? Do I tell them they're sinners do I, do, I, do I point to their sin even? You know, John the Baptist, by the way, do you know why he got chopped off? You know, you know why he lost his head? Because he told King Herod, you're an adulterer. He told him that. He said, you're an adulterer. You've got the wrong wife. He lost his head. He could have fudged the gospel and kept his head. He really could have. Do you know how many times I have fudged the gospel? Many times. And you probably have too. Because it's really hard to go right to the point and point to someone and say, you know what? Your life is an offense to a holy God. And your sin merits the judgment of God. And actually, you deserve hell for your sin. And Christ died for you. And Christ wants to forgive your sin. See, the problem is that for people to come to Christ, they must recognize their sin. They must recognize that the only solution for their sin is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way. So that leads to point five. It goes fast now. He was bloodied by the mob. Point five. Bloodied by the mob. Acts 7, verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. You know what that means? You're so mad. Being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Then he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven out of the city, they began stoning him. And witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen, and he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Can you imagine? You've just told Joe, Joe, you're a rotten sinner. And imagine here they they take up all these stones, and there's this whole crowd with stones, and and you're sitting there looking at all these people about to throw a stone, you're going, no. No way. They're not really going to do this. They're not really going to throw the stone at me. And suddenly, whammo, 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 whammo. And the stones start coming and you start protecting yourself. And they start coming big stones, small stones, all sorts of stones. And they hit you and they really hurt. 
And finally, you get knocked down on your knees, and those stones keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. The pain is excruciating. It says in verse 58, they began stoning him. That means they continued to do so. Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen. And finally, Stephen realized he was a dead man, so he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, he falls on his knees, probably one final blow at his head. And he dies. Can you imagine going through that? So, are we all going to die like that? No. No, but Jesus said in Luke fourteen twenty seven, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Are we ready to? And the way to be ready to is to not fudge the gospel. That's the problem. <laughs> That's the problem. Number six. Number six. He was bent towards success. Now, this, this point will surprise you. I'm going to ask you a trick question. Okay? Trick question. Let me ask you this question. Do you think Stephen was successful as an evangelist? Do you think he was a successful evangelist? You're probably going to say this is a safe answer. Yes, of course. Okay? Or there wouldn't be like three chapters on him or two chapters in the whole Bible about him. He was obviously very successful. Okay? We don't doubt that. Okay, but let me ask you this. How many people did he actually lead to Christ? What was the actual direct fruit of his ministry? It's a trick question because we don't know. Actually, we don't know. All we know is that one man was influenced. Paul. Because it says that Paul was there. Verse eight, Chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. So Paul saw that. And Paul gets saved in chapter 9. So he obviously influenced Paul. But did he have a massive ministry where, where people were just coming to Christ like all over the place? No. Not that we know of. But was he successful? Yes, he was. How does that work? Do you remember where Jesus based his ministry operations? Capernaum, right? In Luke 4.40 says this, When the sun was setting, all those who had any sick people that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Jesus literally wiped Capernaum of all disease and sickness. The whole city, everyone came, he healed everybody, literally. Jesus preached most of his sermons in Capernaum. Sermon on the Mount, Capernaum. Most of them. So, just think about that. He did most of his sermons, preached most of his sermons, and wiped the city out of all disease. Now, you get to Matthew 11, verse 23 and 24, you are stunned. Stunned by these verses. Matthew 11, 23 and 24, And you, Capernaum, Jesus says who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, Capernaum, you are condemned to hell. Though they received more sermons and more miracles than anybody else, they still remained in unbelief. So, question, was Jesus a successful evangelist? Ah, that's an interesting question. In a way, he was a complete failure in Capernaum. Failure, what I'm trying to say is, there was no visible fruit. A few people, but but basically no visible fruit. Therefore, evangelism and success in evangelism is something completely different than the desired fruit. Oh, sure, I would like to see tons of people come to Christ. They don't in France. So, what defines success? Defined success is preaching the whole gospel to someone that they might be able to make a decision for or against Jesus Christ. That's successful evangelist. That's what Jesus did. That is what Stephen did. That's what John the Baptist did. John the Baptist did not lead Herod to Christ. But he was a successful evangelist. Very interesting. Very interesting. You know what? In the parable of the sower, it seems that most people who hear the gospel will reject it. Three out of four. Three out of four will reject it. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by it. More people will reject the gospel than receive it. That actually encourages me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I want people to come to Christ, but there's so little fruit in Europe that it actually comforts me. To know that it's not my problem. It's not my problem. And that leads to the last and the final point. A great evangelist is based in the church, bridged to the world, bathed in the word, bold with the point, bloodied by the mob. He was bloodied by the mob. Bent towards success. And finally, blessed by the Lord. Chapter 7 and verse 55 But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Then he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, rushed at him with one impute. They stoned him. And in verse 60, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Wow. Can you imagine being exalted? It says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Here he's standing up. It seems that when a martyr comes to heaven, Jesus stands up to greet him. He is blessed by the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful in few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The great evangelist named Stephen. What a man. What a man. Based in the church. Bridged to the world. Bathed in the world. Bold with the point. Bloodied by the mob. Bent towards success. And blessed by the Lord. May the Lord help us. Amen. To be Stephens in our evangelism. Lord, thank you. And thank you again for this wonderful example of bold evangelism. Lord, we know that not everyone 
is an evangelist, but everyone is a witness. That's what Acts 1-8 says. So I pray that we would all just simply be a little bolder when we can in our witness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, John.